Welcome to Full Release with Samantha B. Hopefully you'll experience one by the end of this. For all you palindrome lovers out there, today is 2-22-22. Pretty cool. And for all you podcast lovers out there, this is a brand spanking new episode for you. Kind of like a little comedy concert, if you will. And like every episode, today we're going to have a rollicking conversation and maybe even learn something while engaging in a legitimate political discourse. Like the real kind, not the insurrection kind. As always, I'm joined by my producers, Adam Howard and Svea Baron-Reinstein. And in honor of it being 2-2-2-2-2, we have two guests for you. So bring on double the fun. Oh my God, you know Stacey Abrams for being, well... Stacey Abrams. What you might not know is that in addition to being one of the heroes of democracy, she's also a small business owner. So we have also invited her business partner, Lara Hodgson, to join us today as well. So podcast gals, we are talking business today. Have either of you ever been touched by the entrepreneurial spirit? Uh, Do you have any inventions? Not an invention. <laughs> what a question. Yeah, I want to be what an inventor. What have you invented? Yep. Uh, no, but my wife and I do have this fantasy of maybe in our golden years mm-hmm. buying um, like a small movie theater. And we'd like to <gasps> Very do on brand. like double features where both movies are sort of like in some way complementing each other, either oh. thematically or plot wise or whatever, but like old movies, classic movies. And so, and there's actually a place like down the block from us that used to be a movie theater and it would be okay. like the perfect spot. But um, yeah, one day, one day. Oh, that's our that's little fantasy. That's such a nice idea. Yeah. I love that. Svea, what about you? No, I wish I had a fun idea like that. I had, I think, exactly two lemonade stands as a child. <laughs> okay. And that was the extent of my entrepreneurship. But I feel like in your fam, you bake things and you should open a bake <laughs> shop one day. Like you have. I think. That's like, that's so American. I feel like not just because you can do something does not mean that you should make money off of it. (laughs) I guess so. I guess that's true. I often think about that for myself and I don't know. I don't have any real, I don't really want to do that, but I definitely have a file of like recipes I know would kick ass in a restaurant. (laughs) It's really dumb. I'm like, oh, this would sell. I'm like, I'll put this in my file of things that would sell. I did once sell... I'm just remembering I once sold something on Facebook Marketplace for more mm-hmm. than I bought it for. And that oh. felt like a real coup. That's like I definitely it. turned a profit on that. You're a tycoon. Yeah, you basically. It. You did it. Watch out. Okay, I'm excited about today's conversation. Don't go anywhere because we have Stacey Abrams and Laura Hodgson coming right up. Today, we have not one but two incredible guests. Laura Hodgson is president and CEO of NowCore and has served as an entrepreneur in residence at Harvard Business School. She's also founded companies like Nourish and Insomnia LLC with Stacey Abrams. Well, you know Stacey. Stacey Abrams is the former minority leader of the Georgia House of Representatives, the 2018 Democratic candidate for governor in Georgia, and the founder of Fair Fight Action. She is currently running for governor in Georgia, the state she helped turn blue in 2020. She's also an accomplished author, and Laura and Stacy's new book, Level Up, is out today. Please welcome two women who prove that startups aren't just tech bros in fleece vests, Stacey Abrams and Laura Hodgson. I'm so happy that you're joining me today. Where are you both right now? I am in my office in Atlanta. Okay. And Laura, where are you? 
I'm in my home in Atlanta also. You're, you both live in Atlanta. Okay. We're going to talk about your book and we're going to talk about, um, we're going to have a rollicking conversation about 10 million different things. So I know you both probably get your best thinking done at two o'clock in the morning. So thank you for joining me at 4 p.m., which is basically when I have my dinner. Do you, do you ever sleep? Either of you? Do you ever sleep? Yeah, of course. Okay. <laughs> sleep, right. sl- what, Stacy? wasn't that one of our rules for nourish? Sleep is optional. It is optional. We, 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 will, we will opt to do it sometimes. Okay. We just don't talk about when we sleep and, right. and how long. Okay. Okay. As long as our brain doesn't have to turn off while we're sleeping, we're good. That's great. Are you expert cat nappers? Like, are you experts at sitting up straight and having a nap with your eyes closed at your desk? I can cat nap. I can sleep for six, 12, and 24 minute increments and wake up without being groggy. <laughs> That's amazing. I would expect no less. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you for saying that. Okay. <laughs> so I know you're both really busy, but hear me out. Next judges on Shark Tank. What do you think? I'm pitching you. I'm gonna, we're going to talk about your book and then I'm going to pitch you to the producers of Shark because I really feel you could do it. I'm applying for this other job, but if that doesn't work out, I'll, I'll keep it. I'll oh, keep it in mind. Yeah, that other job. Yeah. We will talk about that as well. <laughs> okay. All right. Can you give us so you are your business partners? You've known each other for a super long time. Can you tell the listening audience how do you how did you both meet? How do you know each other? Is that a long question? That's like a very involved question. I will let Laura do the honors this time. No, we can we, we can do it tag team. Um, so Stacy and I met originally when I facilitated a, a strategic planning session for an organization that she was chairing, but I didn't know we met at the time. Okay. And then a few years later, we were both in the Leadership Atlanta 2004 class and one of the very first activities that you do is a race relations workshop. And so we were sitting in a big, large circle with a bunch of people we barely knew. And the facilitator was masterful at making people do something outside of their comfort zone. And so he pushed Stacy to share something very personal that other people would not know that she would never share. And she said that she wanted to be president of the United States. And I nearly jumped out of my chair And I thought, I must meet this woman because when I, as a little girl, I used to say, I want to be president of the United States. And I've never heard another woman say that. So a few minutes later, we broke for lunch and I accosted her at the buffet line. So I'll pick up the story there. So I'm standing (laughs) Uh in the lunch line, having revealed myself to a group of strangers in ways I do not find comfortable. Sure. And this very exuberant young woman comes up to me and says, oh my God, we have to know each other. And I'm thinking, please uh, give me six feet of, of personal space. <laughs> and then I, I recognized her. And I'm like, she had facilitated this uh, conference or this retreat I'd been a part of. And she was one of the few people I'd ever taken notes from where what she said was so interesting to me. It went into the little notes compartment of my then BlackBerry, but it has traveled with me in every uh, device I've had since then. And so I let her get a little closer mm-hmm. and she says... I've never had anyone heard anyone say that before. And I said, I haven't either. I don't hear women say it. I don't hear black people say it. I certainly have never heard a black woman say it. And in this space, it was important to me after being prodded to say it out loud. And so she said, do you want to have lunch? Uh And we were standing lunch line together. And I said, sure, because clearly I wasn't going to get away. And it was the best decision ever because we had lunch together. We ended up in a study group together. We became fast friends and then we became business partners. 
business partners. And so, okay, so tell me about, tell me about this book that you have written together. Can you have, is this the, I don't, pardon me for not knowing this. Is this the first book that you've written together? It is. It is. And can you tell the audience about the book? And then we'll get into it. Laura and I have always been very intentional about writing down Mm -hmm. who we are as business partners, what we want from our projects. And we have both separately and together held seminars and hosted conversations to tell other entrepreneurs, especially people of color, women, about how to navigate the business space. Mm -hmm. And a few months or last year, Laura reached out to me and said, look, I've got this friend who is an agent do you want to write a book together about our business work? And I thought, I've written about other things I've done. Uh And it was one of, for me, it was important because people know me in the political space. They know me in the nonprofit space. But a huge part of my identity is being an entrepreneur, being someone in small business. And I thought, who else would be a better partner to write this book with than my friend, Laura, and my business partner, Laura? And how was the collaborative experience? Because writing a book is I imagine, well, is it similar to running a business together or is it a completely, are they just like two different animals completely? Well, I think we were blessed to have Heather Cabot as our writer because she was able to sort of wrangle the the stories and the lessons. Mm -hmm. Um, But it really was very much like the way we work in a partnership. It was very collaborative. We both approached topics from different perspectives. And I think that's what makes the book really rich is that in some cases, we share experiences from both of our points of view, mm-hmm. which can often be very different. Right. And I think for the, the in the technical sense, so when Laura and I decided to write this, I was in the midst of doing some other writing projects. Laura is an amazing speaker. And we found Heather, who has written other books with others, with other writers. And what we wanted to do is something slightly different. She had not done a book like this mm-hmm. <laughs> with two very strong-minded, very intentional people, uh, one with someone else who was a writer. And for Laura and myself, we were also very intentional about making sure she was a partner in the project with us. Okay. Because you you can't talk about wanting to help small businesses and then not think about it when it comes to a project like writing a book. And right. so Heather really interviewed both of us. She did a lot of the research. In fact, she did all the bulk of the research. I was able to contribute to some of the writing Laura and I both did a lot of the editing. And in the end, Heather shaped just a remarkable project for us. But it really is a reflection of my voice and Laura's voice. And as a writer myself, what I find so masterful about how Heather helped us is that you can actually hear our separate voices in this Mm. very singular collaboration. Now, Laura, Stacey has a background writing steamy romance novels as well. (laughs) Did you have to restrain her? Okay. For putting steamy scenes into this book. <laughs> I mean, we, you know, there's been some steamy business issues that we've had to deal with, <laughs> but um, no, you know, I I have learned so much from Stacy even back when we had our first couple of companies and she was writing some of her, you know, her steamy fiction books. Um, it was always so interesting to me because I'm an engineer by background, mm-hmm. and and I have to know the end before I start. And Stacy would always just share how her brain would flow as she was writing these things, and it intrigued me so much um, that I've you know I've tried to apply that to my own thinking at times, and it's really helped. Uh, let's let's talk about the business world a little bit because I am not an entrepreneur, so I don't really know. I really don't know the world of 
of entrepreneurship. I do reflect on the fact that so many women have left the workforce in COVID. It, you know, I, I, I don't even know. It, how do we even begin to address? How do we begin to address that? I mean, that's a that's like two hundred steps back. That's like two steps forward, two two hundred back. I would actually start by reframing what you just said. You are okay. an entrepreneur. I mean, Sam, oh. you started with oh. a hosting project, but you have built right. out these multiple entities and these multiple iterations of what you did. And part of what women in particular have to be more intentional about mm-hmm. is claiming the space we occupy. Right. Being an entrepreneur means that you are responsible for eating. <laughs> if okay. you stopped working, are there other people who won't get paid because you're not doing it? <gasps> if you don't go out and find sponsors or find a production company or start your own production company, are there people right. who will not be successful? Part of what women bring to the workforce is that we are always thinking about those other people right. who rely on us. And that's one of the pieces of leveling up. Our book is about recasting what it mm. is you do. I'm a reluctant entrepreneur. I like paychecks. They make me very happy. And it made me very (laughs) sad when I had to be responsible for my own. But working with Laura, I am now the zeal of the converted. Mm -hmm. It is so important that we own our ability to create jobs and to build the companies that can create jobs for others. So I think what you're saying is step into your golden lights and okay, I also want to be the president of the United States. No, I don't. (laughs) I don't don't want that at all. Okay, Uh, here's a question. There are so many super rich, like super rich people in Congress. How important is it to also have small business owners in politics? Like not people who have private jets, but people who understand balancing a budget book at the end of every night. That seems important to me. Well, I think it's incredibly important for a couple of reasons. One, as you mentioned, there are skill sets that you Mm -hmm. simply can't have because you've read about a small business owner. If you haven't, if you haven't been responsible for someone else's livelihood, if you haven't stayed awake at night wondering if a check's going to come in and you're going to be able to pay people, it's really hard to empathize with the vast majority of small businesses, which truly are the engine of our economy. But I also think it's important for small businesses to have a voice. And quite frankly, they've never had a collective voice. When you think about programs to help small businesses, they're always designed by people who've never run a small business. And so small businesses end up being talked at, not with. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I know that nothing should shock us anymore, but were you surprised that PPP loans were snatched up by all those huge corporations somehow? You know, I, th- I think one of the things that PPP showed us or it revealed mm-hmm. is that there is a natural supply chain of capital into small businesses. And we thought it was large financial institutions just because, I mean, people spend a lot of money to market to small businesses. So you would assume that they serve small businesses. Right. What I think we found is that the natural supply chain of capital to small businesses is not large financial institutions, it's actually from their customers. So if you look at 99 cents of every dollar that ever goes into a small business, it comes from getting paid. It comes from their revenue. And so maybe we need to rethink how we help small businesses access that capital better. I think the other part of the challenge is that these programs are often designed 
for large companies, but in a right. miniaturized form. And so one of the conceits that drives our political solutions to economic problems is that we use a template that's not designed for the group we're trying to help. Mm-hmm. For businesses of color, for women-owned businesses, they don't have the same access that a you know a Fortune 100 company will have, right. or even a traditional small business that might be in a community that is used to being served by a bank. Right. And when we, the other challenge is that we don't remember what we learned. We learned this challenge for small businesses during the last economic crisis, when the bailouts happened in 2009, 2010, and did not reach small businesses. We then created the Small Business Jobs Act. Right. And we forgot all of the <laughs> things we learned when we deployed resources in the Small Business Jobs That's the story of America. Exactly. I mean, that's how we do, that's how we do things. We don't yes. like to learn from history. We do not. <laughs> we really don't. Do you? I mean, and and also, you know, we talked to we went to we did shot a piece in Chinatown, and we talked to all these small business owners in Chinatown, and they were like, "We don't like we don't have access to these things. We're busy. Yeah. We're very very busy, and actually, mm-hmm. like accessing." accessing loans and accessing these programs takes a lot of brain space. And, you know, you might actually be um, like working or trying to build your business. And and sometimes the solution overcorrects for bad actors. Mm -hmm. We know that there is a tendency to believe that people are on the make. And yes, PPP revealed lots of folks who tried to game the system, but mm-hmm. there were so many thousands more who simply wanted to navigate the system. Right. And we cannot build policy from a position of fear, especially when it comes to saving the engine of our economy. Right. And that is making certain that small businesses not only have the opportunity to participate, but they have the capacity to participate. Right. And when it takes a week of your life or you have to hire someone mm-hmm. when you're trying to stay afloat, then that is not a solution to the problem before us. Credit and and bank loans. I mean, that's just like one of the endless uh, places where sexism and racism have just like the tightest grip on reality. Are there concrete steps that you would want to see taken to make starting a business a more level playing field? You know, for people who don't have like a million dollar loan from their parents or like family money. How would you level the playing field? Yeah, well, I think you know that's that's one of the things that drove Stacy and I to to start now account is we recognize that a lot of what keeps these types of capital, these tools from being accessible, mm-hmm. is not just the tool itself, but it's the system that the tool is built upon, and so all of the inputs are often biased as well. So if the data that's coming in that's driving decisioning is biased, then the outcome is going to be biased. And so we really stepped back and said, one of the things we would love to see happen is to create an infrastructure where businesses can get paid in a way that utilizes data and serves them in a way that doesn't call for assets they don't have, tie up assets they don't have, and restrict their ability to grow their business and create jobs and generational wealth. It's also about thinking about the problem before the crisis occurs. Okay. One of the challenges with PPP was that most of the money was deployed to major financial institutions Mm -hmm. that do not serve the communities who need the help. But you have small banks in those communities that either existed before those big banks discovered that you know, people of color had money, 
or that came into being after those banks left after the last financial crisis. States and the federal government can use those as depositories. If you actually invest in those small banks, if you invest in those those women-owned banks and those minority-owned banks before there's a crisis, then they are financially strong enough to then deploy the resources in a crisis. And in between, they become viable financial institutions to support small businesses in those communities. Right. Why do you think people need this book right now? Like, why is now the time for your book? One of the things that I think is incredibly important coming through and hopefully out of the pandemic, Mm -hmm. and you mentioned this earlier, is the number of women and minorities that have left the, 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 the job economy. And, and on one hand, it looks promising because we're seeing more businesses started than ever before. But the challenge with that is if those businesses that start today that are just getting incubated have to fight through the same system that we have had to fight through for years, the vast majority will never create jobs and they will never scale. And that will be a wasted effort for the health of the economy and the creation of generational wealth. So I think now is such a critical time because we've got all of these folks entering the ecosystem of entrepreneurship, maybe mm-hmm. reluctantly like Stacy and I did, maybe intentionally. But if we can give them the tools and the lessons now, their chance to scale is 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 better than ever before because more businesses grow out of business than go out of business. And so it's not starting the business, it's how do we ensure that they scale? Right. I think it's also providing a template for decision-making that so many of our communities do not have. Mm-hmm. If you look at the raft of business books, at the you know, panoply of stories about how to start your small business, they're usually David versus Goliath stories where you always win with the first slingshot. Laura and I talk about how you drop the slingshot, how the, the, the rock turned out to be a bubble. You know, you, we, we go through all of the failures for you and we mm-hmm. provide a template for how to navigate when it doesn't work. Right. And I think that's such an important story, especially for these young people or for you know, women or people of color who are now, because of the pandemic, entering the space. It's helpful to have a roadmap that's been written by someone who knows how you travel. Yes. I think that's so interesting because like, you know, as we've established, I don't think of myself in an entrepreneurial way. And I'm going to reframe that. Thank you, Stacy, for myself. But there are lessons that you learn at each stage of the business. And you go, oh, I wish someone had just told me to write down a mission statement for myself. Like, (laughs) I wish that I had done that. And I just never, when you're starting a business and when you're like in those early, when you're in that earliest Mm -hmm. grind and you just have a thing and you're trying to do it every day, it's really, really hard to think about the kind of philosophy. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of people probably smartly start with the philosophy and grow from there, but I, for example, did not. I just started with the product and then developed a philosophy (laughs) over time, but it's great to have a chance to have someone draw you along and have you check in with yourself mentally. And to remind you of, or to help you anticipate some of the challenges you're going to face. When you borrow money from friends, Mm -hmm. you risk friendships. (laughs) And it may be worth the risk, but someone needs to tell you to think about it. 
and make certain that the cost of capital isn't just the interest rate. It's also the psychic effect if you lose your friend's money. Family has to love you. Friends don't. And often you're told (laughs) your angel investors are friends and family. So let's make certain you've thought through what that means. If you do not come from a space where you have friends or family with any money, which was my experience, Mm -hmm. where do you go to find friends or, you know, very, very, you know, gullible acquaintances? I should say gullible, but (laughs) where do you you find willing acquaintances who are, who will invest with you? And often the narratives out there presume that you grow up. Laura and I both grew up without those communities around us. And there are very few narratives out there that help you understand that you're not alone and that there is a way to navigate it. And that's one of the reasons Level Up is so important to us. You have a story in the book about an experience with supply chain issues, which is such a big part of the conversation now. It's not really something that I think most average people thought about before the pandemic. And like, I certainly don't recall in my lifetime thinking, sitting up and thinking about supply chain issues, like ordering. Remember that ship that sank recently had one of my... I bought a cookbook and then I learned that all the cookbooks fell into the ocean. (laughs) These things happen. So are you surprised that people are talking about it now? And what, how do you reflect on that? Well, I think, you know, one of the things that's interesting is when we talk about small business in this country, we tend to have this image of main street Um, Mm -hmm. Even Small Business Week, the little drawing that goes with it looks like a little center of shops. And so we tend to initially think that all small businesses are the nail salon or the pizza parlor when the vast majority of small businesses are sitting not on Main Street where it's lovely and there's shoppers, they're sitting behind the loading docks and all the way back in that supply chain, which isn't near as sexy to talk about, but it's where a lot of our neighbors, a lot of our community members, that's where they work, that's where their jobs are, that's where the opportunities are. And I think, you know, in a way, when we started working together, we really wanted to focus on those kind of business-to-business companies that are stuck in the supply chain. And, and they're, they're typically between a rock and a hard place because they've got to pay up front to get something, but their customers aren't paying them in time, so they can't win. Right. And in a way, maybe one of the silver linings of the current supply chain issues is for the first time ever, it made the common person care about the supply chain because right. we couldn't find toilet paper. All of a sudden, we were like, whoa, there's a supply chain. <laughs> right, right. And I believe, has that one resolved? I think that one resolved itself it did. For, for now, at least. But didn't it just prove to everybody how <laughs> how much we're all on the precipice of society breaking down? <laughs> just fights. <laughs> we are on a razor's edge. <laughs> you talk about how you can't give 100% of yourself to everything that needs it all the time. There just I mean, there just literally isn't enough time in the day to do that. Personally, how do you decide what gets your attention? I use President Eisenhower's quadrant approach. Of course you, have- you do. Yes, you do. <laughs> <Believe this>. So, <laughs> so his, the at the at the top of your list should be mm-hmm. things that are both important and urgent, meaning doing it will make things better and the timing matters. Next come things that are important, meaning that by doing so, you're advancing a cause. 
mm-hmm. that will always compete with things that are urgent, but not important. So you have things that are urgent and important, things that are important, but not urgent, and things that are urgent, but not important. And the calculus there is if it's important, but not urgent, you have to decide how much it matters to you. If it's urgent, but not important, you have to decide if you care about what happens if it doesn't get done. Because there are some things that we think are urgent, and it's really someone's bugging us about it. But when you investigate it, you realize, that's not my problem, really. Or it just feels immediate because people keep talking about it. And it's usually in that band, the urgent but not important versus important but not urgent, that we find all of our tensions. And then when you just need to get away from it all, go to things that are neither urgent nor important. Often, that is where I find my happiest times. (laughs) Well... Well, are you a quadrant person? I was going to say, this is going to show you exactly why Stacy and I are different because she has quadrants and she used the word calculus in her answer. <laughs> <laughs> Mine is not near that organized. Mm-hmm. Um, but I read an article years ago that really stuck with me. And it talked about the fact that we often, when we get stressed and under pressure, will say things like, I don't have enough time, right? I don't have right. time. And if you think about that sentence, you're the object and, and as if some fate has conspired to steal your time from you. And the article suggested that you should reframe that sentence to, I choose not to have time. So if I say, I don't have time to do X, and instead I say, I choose not to have time to do X, if that doesn't sit well with you, then you're prioritizing poorly. That's great. So for example... If it's my child and I say, I choose not to have time to go to my son's game this week, that doesn't feel right. So it is important. If I can say I choose not to have time and I'm okay with that, then I shouldn't do it. Wow, that's so good. Both of those are excellent. Oh, (laughs) what are the business lessons that you both find yourselves going back to with each of your new endeavors, whether it's like launching Fair Fight, or let's say running a gubernatorial campaign. I don't know, just out of the blue. So Laura and I have lessons that we wrote down at Mm -hmm. the start of our working relationship. My two favorites are we don't work with jerks. Mm -hmm. We have fired clients and I have broken off negotiations. Mm -hmm. When you, you don't operate with integrity, we don't have to agree but we have to respect. And that's an incredibly important dynamic, especially in politics. Mm -hmm. I can work with you if we don't agree. We can find a space where we can navigate what we need to accomplish. But if there's a fundamental lack of integrity in your actions, then there's nothing good that will come of our collaboration. And the other is that we work with our head and our hearts. We want to do well and do good. Someone who grew up without a lot, and in fact, the last time I ran for office was chastised for you know my my lack of resources. I've had the opportunity in the last few years because I you know I had some free time. I've <laughs> been able to be more successful, and there's a tension sometimes in our society where we encourage success, but we criticize its achievement. And Laura and I believe that you have to do well and do good, that you can be financially successful, which is why I'm in business, but you can also do right by people, Mm -hmm. which is why I start nonprofit organizations and I do the work I do in politics. Those don't have to be in conflict. 
but it's about your intention and it's about making sure that you're doing well and doing good at the same time and that you never let doing well change how you feel about doing good. Do you find that it's hard to teach people how to say no? Is it hard? You know, because I, I mean, I, I'm only... I'm just saying this as, you know, because I come from a tradition of being a performer and you kind of get jobs in a haphazard way. And it's hard to say no to things. It's hard to, when opportunities come your way in such a tight marketplace, you, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to navigate those kind of like the inner angst you can feel with some jobs or some opportunities. But Stacey, I'm hearing in what you just said, that you're able to say no, you're able to turn away clients, you're able to like engage with someone and then say, I'm not into this, this is not working for me. That's hard to do. Laura and I had a dynamic or we have a dynamic, it's called yes, but. You don't say no, you say yes, but. Yes, but Mm. you can't be the person I work with. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yes, this is a great idea, but you're going to have to find a replacement. Yes, this is an amazing opportunity, but I'm going to have to wait and do it at a different time. You don't have to say no, Mm -hmm. but you have to let yourself have that second part of the sentence because otherwise you get overwhelmed. I know Laura, she and I have this conversation a lot. Yeah, I I agree. And I would say the other, I think the big lesson that I've always taken away is the key to revealing innovative solutions is in the question and be willing to ask questions. And, and a lot of times those questions come from a place of truly not knowing something. That's okay. Have mm-hmm. confidence in the fact that you don't know something. You know, one of the commonly held beliefs in business that people love to say all the time is, it's just business, it's not personal. And, and that's BS. It's all personal because it's all about people. Right. And so if you're an unwilling to question those things and push beyond the kind of general assumptions, then you're never going to drive the innovation. But I also think that's where women have a potential superpower because we are good at the personal side of things. We're good at finding the personal connectivity and the significance in it. I think women are better. I mean, I don't want to gender this, but I do think women are better at saying, I don't know the answer to this, but I would like to find a solution with you. Yes. Can we collaborate? Is that been your experience? Absolutely. I mean, when when Stacy and I had first started Now Account, and we were talking to a number of folks that came from traditional lending backgrounds, we would walk in, and and some people would say what you just said. They would say, "You know what? I don't completely understand what you're doing, but I'd love to hear more." Mm-hmm. And then there were some people that before we could get one sentence out of our mouth, they would say, "I already know what you're doing." I thought, well, gosh, that's interesting. I'm not sure how, because you haven't let me speak yet. Um, and it was, it was in hindsight, when we looked back on those that got there and those that didn't, we realized that all of the ones that got there, someone in the room in a position of decision-making was female. And they were okay with saying, I don't understand it, but gosh, I'd love to hear more. Oh, that's so interesting. Do you have... Do you- do both of you have personal business mentors? Like, are there people in the business world that you look to for inspiration or books that you've read in the past? I mean, you know, obviously your book is the best book. But along the uh, along the way, are there inspirational business leaders that you've looked to who have inspired you? 
So, so I have a book and I have a version of mentors. Mm -hmm. Long ago, I realized that oftentimes we have this persona of a mentor as being the person that's going to pat you on the back when things don't go well. Mm -hmm. Um, And my mother does that for me. What I really wanted was a group of people that would call BS if I was believing my own perspective and not being open-minded. And Mm -hmm. so I created sort of a personal board of directors, people that are not attached to the company. They don't come from the industry, but periodically I'll share with them decisions I've made or what I'm doing. And what I want them to do is to show me, you know, sort of pull the cord and sound the alarm when something is incongruent with with who I am because they know who I am. That's interesting. So personal board of directors and the book that I love, which is not actually a business book uh, because I love sports, is called The Captain's Class. And it's actually a book about the 16 sports teams across all sports globally that were the most dominant for the longest period of time in their sport. And the title gives it away. But the when they figured out those 16 and they, they looked at the commonalities, they realized it was not a star performer. It was not the coach, but each of those teams had a captain that was either informally or formally chosen who had the grit and the fortitude to never let their teams give up. And I just think that is such a great analogy for business because we tend to, as leaders, spend a lot of time on the superstar A players, Mm -hmm. and we spend a lot of time on those that are struggling. And there's usually somebody in the middle that's like your B plus stick to it, loyal, never going to give up, that really is the key to your long-term success. I love the idea. love the word that you just said. I love the idea of grit. I think about it a lot. You got to have grit. You got to have grit. You got to like, when you run a business, you got to, you're going to take some, you're going to take some gut punches. It's very emotional. And I like the idea of having a personal board of directors, just like people in your life who challenge your, who challenge you is very important. Stacy, do you have people in your life who challenge you who say, no, Stacy, bad idea. My parents gave me my own personal board board of advisors because I am the second of six children. Okay. And there are no (laughs) unexpressed opinions amongst my siblings. But like Laura, I have this sort of board of advisors. And for me, it's a combination of friends, but I've been privileged to have people from different facets of my life who Mm -hmm. understand the other pieces or don't but are very comfortable critiquing or giving me advice. And I think it's always helpful to have that cross-pollination of someone in politics helping me think about a business concern or having someone in a nonprofit talk about what the for-profit entity should be thinking about. And I think it's always important to have people who don't think that they're experts in what you do, because that means they're more willing to hear what you're saying because they're not already thinking through their own experiences to answer the question. Right. For me, there isn't a business book, but I love reading political biographies because they're always the best ones tell you how, not just how to be successful, but where, what are the foibles? How have people misunderstood their power, misread a moment? Those are my favorites because success is born of understanding failure Mm -hmm. and being willing to acknowledge it, live with it, but also to see when it's the failure of the moment or the failure of your person. Right. 
And I always want to make certain that I'm not failing myself as a person, because when you fail yourself, you're failing those who rely on you. And as a small business owner, whether it's yourself, your family, or your employees, your responsibility is to to be as successful as possible. But that means you've already started thinking about what happens when you do something wrong. Right. I feel like the, often the I get asked the question, um, you know, what's the hardest part of what's the hardest part of working at a TV show? And I'm always like, it's management. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's very, it doesn't necessarily, it doesn't necessarily come naturally. It's a steep, steep learning curve. You know, on a personal note, I've mishandled lots of things I've learned. I always am trying to like learn and grow and do better. Mm-hmm. And thinking about management, I think, is a big step because I think there are there are people out there running businesses who never think about it. And that's a disaster. It should occupy like a lot of your brain. Absolutely. I mean, it's human resources. You're mm-hmm. more than your economic capital, your human capital matters. Right a really disgruntled employee is going to make it hard to get somebody new. Right. But more than that, you are, you're squandering opportunities for revenue when you haven't thought about what that person needs. And Laura and I talked about this with now account. We always think about HR early, right? Because you're, you're often cautioned. Well, you don't need to hire an HR person until you hit a critical mass, five employees, 10 employees. The minute someone else relies on you for a paycheck and they don't get to fire you, you have human resources issues because your job, mm-hmm. whether it's one person, your job is to make certain that they are being served well, that you are living your values, and that they are delivering their best. Right. And so human resources management has to be the very beginning of the conversation of running a strong business. Right. There's so much encouraging economic news out there, especially in the job market, but I feel like it's just getting really eclipsed by reporting on inflation and supply chain issues. Is it what is the what is the reason for all of the economic anxiety out there? And how can you dispel some of that for us today, please? People are in pain. This has been a persistent economic, healthcare, and social crisis. And while the pandemic forced us to have a lot of time to focus on it, it was also revelatory. Mm-hmm. And where we could speed past our pains in other times, it stays with us. There's this constant threat to our very existence that's out there. And rather than that, threat pulling us together. It has revealed divisions that use the pandemic as a proxy. When you are feeling constant threat, it is hard to receive good news. Right. But it's also important that we give people space to feel their pain mm-hmm. and that we not take these macro numbers and try to mask micro problems. these individualized challenges. And so what I would say to folks is that, yes, you feel pain. Yes, this is hard. But yes, there is opportunity. And there are ways forward. And that the most effective way to get beyond malaise is to have hope. Right. But for that hope to be married with real pathways to growth and to change and to success. And that for me is the, the dynamic of this moment that we have so many people who are mired in figuring out whose fault 
the malaises that mm-hmm. we aren't talking about whose opportunity it is to make success and hope possible. So here you are, and you've got this book, and you're empowering business owners to have that optimism to level up. Oh my God, you're running for governor. This is, and okay, this is a very exciting time. So I'm going to wrap it up, but I just tell me more about optimism. What is that fleeting concept? How can we feel? <laughs> you know, it's a worry. It's it's a worrisome world. Um, it's going to potentially be a tough year for Democrats. Polling feels a little discouraging. How should we? How do we? Well, how are we going to remain optimistic? And I feel like optimism is is what we need. We do need it. So Laura and I are from different political parties. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's a political independent. I'm a Democrat. And while I am going to be rooting for Democrats to win elections, I'm going to be working for people to have better lives. Right. And we sometimes conflate these to the detriment of our goals. I, I'm a Democrat because I believe in what we believe in. But I'm running for office because I believe in what people are capable of. And I know that I can work with one of my dearest friends who does not share my political identity, but our values are so strong that we've created a multi-million dollar corporation together. Mm -hmm. And we have survived successes, failures, stumbles, mistakes, and we've done dumb things for good reasons and (laughs) dumb things for bad reasons. (laughs) And, And we know how to be forgiving. We know how to be resilient. And that's the story of America. Right. We can win as Democrats, as people, as Americans, as Georgians, if we remember why we're doing it. But when we focus on the fight so much that we forget the reason we were fighting, the thing we want, that's when we get in trouble. And that's optimism. Optimism doesn't say you ignore the fight. Optimism says you remember the goal. Oh, I love that. Oh, look at And Laura, you're just nodding. You're like, <laughs> I yes. I love it. I love it. I mean, Stacy and I start off the book by saying that our differences are our superpower. And I think that's true of us as a partnership, but it is true of our country. Our country is beautifully diverse. And if we can harness that the way Stacy and I have in our partnership, then there's nothing but optimism. That's amazing. Okay, level up, folks. <laughs> level up. I don't know if you heard that person honking outside my window. Did you I hear did. that we sustained did. angry honking? <laughs> I thought it was applause for Laura's brilliant line. I <laughs> felt that there was somebody is going to need a copy of Level Up out there. Somebody there needed go. to hear this conversation. <laughs> and both of you talking. This was a delight. I, I just I'm so grateful that you both came on the show. And I think people should get really excited about your books. It sounds like just the thing, just the thing we need right now. Thank you, Samantha B. Yes, thank you. Thank you. And thank you for reminding me that I'm a business owner. You are. Because I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot to believe in myself, but I appreciate the correction. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I got to squeeze in another quick break right here. Oh, my goodness. Very interesting. I found that very interesting. 
I love when you learn about like someone else's talents when they're known for something completely different, completely different. Yeah. And I do love to be reminded that I am a business owner because I forgot that part. <laughs> and you know what? That's crazy. <laughs> well, as two of your employees, we never forget that. So. <laughs> I, oh. yeah, please stop forgetting that. We Does it? Is it annoying when when I'm talking and I'm like, I'm a bad manager, and you're like, That's true. <laughs> Don't answer that question. You're like, Yeah, no, you failed a lot. It's no. a yes, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we were there. We saw that. <laughs> Again, you hold both of our lives <laughs> in the palm of your hand. <laughs> oh, You're God. one errant tweet away from this <laughs> killing us <laughs> off. <laughs> I think about that <sighs> like very often. That's so <laughs> funny. Like, about how Sam's one tweet away from ruining our lives. <laughs> sort of. I mean, again, I would never think she would do that. But I always think like, I always think the burden of that is incredible. And I can't imagine what that's like for you. Two and a half margaritas away from total destruction. <laughs> I've got some thoughts on the N word. I think By I'll take them way. to Twitter. <laughs> God help me. Oh All my right. God. Oh my God. Oh, okay. All right. Let's play a game, please. Well, as you know, yes. when we mentioned Stacey Abrams has written many books under both yes. the name Stacey Abrams and under mm-hmm. her pen name of Selena Montgomery. Yes. And some other famous people wrote under pen names, too. Which is a beautiful... I, I love the name Selena Montgomery. It's very romantic. Are you going to be able to tell us which of the following pen names goes with what... Like, can you name the real name for the following pen names? No. I Probably can't name not. any of them. <laughs> I can tell you right now, I don't know any of them. All right. This is going to be really fast, then. Well, thanks for listening. <laughs> yep. Thanks for listening, everybody. I don't know any real authors. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, we'll start with uh, okay. an easier one then. Dr. Okay. Seuss? His name was Dr. Seuss. <laughs> <laughs> he was a doctor. He was a doctor. <laughs> of the famous Seuss family. Of the Seusses. Uh, no, I have no idea what any of these people's names really <laughs> right, are. His, his real name was Theodore Geisel. That's the first Ring time I've ever heard that. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad he picked Seuss. That's a better name. <laughs> Theodore Geisel. <laughs> Don't know him. Yeah, he did it. That was good. That's good that he did that. Don't know him. <laughs> Don't like him. I don't like his writing. <laughs> he can't write books. He can't wow. write books with that name. Damn uh, it. Okay, uh, next up okay. is Mark Twain. Okay, no clue. <laughs> oh, really? That's a really I told you, one. like, I don't. Yeah, but I don't. I'll be like, no, that's a completely different person. I don't know any of these people. I just believe they're the fiction. <laughs> uh, well, it's it's uh, Samuel Clemens. Oh, yeah, right. I did know that, but I forgot. That's <laughs> just like you forgot you were a business owner. Just like I forgot that I was... What is going on with Sam today? <laughs> if that is her real name. No one believes that this is my real name, but this is my birth name. I know. That is an often asked question. It was what yes. is B short for? I know. I do have, I've, I've framed them actually. I have all these old marriage certificates from like the old bees <laughs> from like the 1800s. Wow. They're all, it goes way back. It goes a, way back. It's a legit name. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right. This one I did not know. Silence do good. What? No, I don't. No. I told you I wouldn't know any of these. Apparently, for a time, uh, mm-hmm. Benjamin Franklin wrote under that name. What? Say it again? Silence do good? <sighs> Didn't he have, like, syphilis or something? 
I'm sure. I I just know that that affects your mental state and maybe he was going through some shit. It's just like fingertips and toenails (laughs) fell off. They had so there were all manner of hideous diseases that would just take you and rot you like a turtle in a dirty old aquarium. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Uh, What about George Orwell? No clue. No, I don't. No, I'm like, Mr. George Orwell. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, I accept. (laughs) Eric Blair is the name. What? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) We learned a lot on this one. This is, I've learned everything and I've forgotten everything. I literally forgot (laughs) that name. I don't need to know it. What's his name again? Eric Blair. Eric Blair. It's gone. It's already gone. It doesn't, it's it George doesn't Orwell. For, like, you got to have Orwellian. It's Blairian? Yeah. No. Yeah. Blairian? Eric? That's just not... Yeah. I'm glad he went with George Orwell. Eric. I'm, my name's Eric, and I wrote a book called... All right. Plenty of people named Eric did write books. <laughs> nope. Just that one. All right. Last but not least uh-huh. is a okay. trio. Mm. I won't know it. Ellis yep. and Acton mm-hmm. Bell. Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. <laughs> <laughs> yes. No. That's uh, it. Those are the Bronte sisters. Excuse me? <laughs> they had to write under uh, male pen names. Oh, uh, Lord help typical. me. I feel at one time in my life, perhaps I knew these things, but also maybe not. I did go to school in Canada. Erase that. Don't keep that. <laughs> Edit that out. Oh, boy. I'm in so much trouble. All right. This was super fun. I love uh, I love talking to people who believe in themselves. <laughs> it's refreshing. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. I hope you liked it. I'm tired of saying my podcast. It's our podcast. Okay. Hope you liked our podcast. If you did... Let me know in the comments. If you didn't, please consider hate listening in the future. Seriously, though, please rate, review, and follow full release in Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends. Spread the word about this podcast. Don't give me margaritas. All hell will break loose. In the meantime, keep sending us your comments and questions to fullrelease at sampy.com. They might even be featured in one of our special bonus episodes, exclusively available on Stitcher Premium. Today's recording was a doozy. Don't forget to tune into Full Frontal with Samantha B. Thursdays at 10 p.m. on TBS. And we'll see you next Tuesday for another full release. This podcast is brought to you by Earwolf and TBS and was produced by Adam Howard and Sophia Baron-Reinstein with IT and technical production provided by High Tech. It was edited by Julia Fott and hosted by me, Samantha B. Well, so like when he fills the closet, then what? Like- then what? Yeah, what's the plan? <laughs> well, eventually they'll move. Yeah, they'll move oh, on their own. This house. The, it's the sandwich's house now. 